Welcome to Coffee House. Climate alarmists have been streaking down motorways, making siren sounds for decades now. There are a lot of questions. Are we affecting the climate? Is the effect mild? Is it moderate? Are we 10 years from the apocalypse? A climate activist for 30 years, Michael Schellenberger, tries to cut through the morass of climate activism to the real situation that we face. Published June 2020, Apocalypse Never tries to attack so many questions related to the climate movement, climate change, global warming, and many other environmental-related activist positions. So, as always, we are going to go through the contents of the book, we're going to do a little analysis, and then we'll do some big-picture stuff, and then in the follow-up episode, we'll do a discussion where we dive into the ideas a little more. So in the introduction, first, he talks about Extinction Rebellion, which will make repeated appearances throughout the book. Extinction Rebellion is a climate activist group. The author's been an environmental activist for 30 years and ultimately became fed up with the alarmism that he was seeing all over the place. And this book specifically is based on up-to-date science. Like I said, this is published in June of 2020, so this was uh, pretty much as up-to-date as you're going to get on this stuff. It's not the end of the world is the first major substantive chapter. So we had certain hilariously owned yesterday members of Congress who were saying that the world was going to end in 12 years because he or she misread a headline or two. But of course, this is something that has not been said by the IPCC, This the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a UN body that's supposed to be an objective source of the state of climate science. No IPCC report has reported these apocalyptic predictions that you see all over the place related to the climate. And technology, not climate change, is the most important thing when we're talking about what to do about the climate and the effects of what's going to be happening to people as a result of anything that might happen with the climate. And flood control systems, apparently this is a really important thing, especially in developing areas, is irrigation systems that can deal with flooding. It's something that causes a lot of damage, and it's something that's very preventable. So again, development is the big idea here. Most of the time, it's journalists who are catastrophizing using just really basic understanding of the information that's coming out. And then that gets amplified by activists, and then suddenly you've got you know one side of the political spectrum that is just screeching. It's not even necessarily the average adherent's fault. It's something that's amplified by celebrities because it's their pet thing. You know, celebrities who have to sublimate the fact that they have way more power and wealth than everybody else. So they choose a cause and the climate's really just kind of the easy one. We go into California fires and how fuel accumulation over time and the fire suppression over time are real confounding factors when it comes to the intensity and likelihood of California fires. We just had those, of course, very recently. And what did California management do? They blamed climate change. It's hilarious how often they will blame something that's so just diffuse and you can't really prove one way or the other rather than the things that were obvious and should have been taken care of. But Extinction Rebellion, this activist group, they will give talks specifically to children. And this is something that is kind of very new for America, at least. We used to have kind of a, a politically neutral method of teaching our children and an encouragement to be skeptical of, of whatever information they're, being, they're imbibing, you know, day in, day out. But the propagandizing has, has been kind of the modus operandi that's been changing over the course of the last few decades. 
just as I was getting out of elementary school and, and middle school and high school. I started seeing it a bit in undergrad and now it's apparently it's just the mode. It's what they do. There was this article that said that there were 10 years until the climate apocalypse, that we only had 10 years until the whole thing was going to collapse. And it was published in 1989. <laughs> the reality is that emissions actually peaked in the 1970s and that it's been on a decline since then, general decline since then. And even I looked at the numbers more recently and that's that's kept up in the United States at least. And this was thanks mostly to the shift to natural gas and coal and nuclear energy instead of other types of energy which will come into play as we go along. The next chapter, Earth's lungs aren't burning. This is about a fire in the Amazon alarmism. So there were a bunch of photos that were being shared by celebrities and it turned out that those photos were not actually of the Amazon burning. Something that keeps repeatedly happening is that developing nations aren't given the same latitude when it comes to their development as developed nations had when they were developing. So something like deforestation, you know, we had mass deforestation and in the United States and in Europe and in other places where they were able to cut out a whole bunch of that so they could develop in those areas and use the land for different means. But in developing nations, this is something that now Western mature nations are putting a lot of pressure on them to not deforest, to not use them in particular ways because they're saying, that, oh, you're hurting the climate or whatever. But so that means that they have way fewer resources to be able to become a mature economy and develop infrastructure that's necessary and use their land in a way that's most efficient and all that stuff. They have less opportunity to do that because they have these big countries that are telling them they can't because they're, they're hurting the climate. And here's another thing that I always thought, I remember initially hearing about, you know, CO2 being in the atmosphere and, and all of that and wondering when I was a kid at least, wondering, well, wouldn't that, when we were learning about photosynthesis, wouldn't that just benefit the plants? Wouldn't that make them more robust? They'd have a, a higher fuel proportion in the atmosphere so they'd be more robust and they'd create more oxygen. Wouldn't that be good? Now, of course, not knowing all the ins and outs of that science, I don't know if high atmospheric CO2 levels are actually beneficial to plants that are close to the ground. But this particular author talks about how higher CO2 levels do increase plant growth and higher temperatures in general increase plant growth. So you have this balance, this give and take that usually occurs. That's how our planet's set up. That's how our bodies are set up. That's how everything's set up. This is that you have this give and take. If you're going to have more CO2 production, then you're going to have more fuel for more plants to be able to grow at a higher rate. And this is just anecdotal, but isn't it the case, I think I read this at some point, that plants are the most robust and grow the most next to highways. So you have, you have highways where there's continual you know, CO2 production, and then they, that's where the plants congregate and they're able to grow more effectively. But in these uh, places, like in the Amazon, one thing they used to do is they'd use controlled burns in forests to funnel a bunch of game so that they could hunt the game. So this is something that would prevent further fires using these controlled burns. But it's something that, again, other nations who aren't there <laughs> and aren't using the land are saying that you can't do that because it goes against environmental principles that we have to uphold. So organizations attack places like Brazil for doing these kinds of things, like Greenpeace and NGOs even though it's something that all of the mature Western nations already got to do. And it's something that places like China and India, they just don't pay attention. They don't care anyway, and they're going to do whatever they want anyway. 
the next chapter, enough with the plastic straws. So there's this viral video that went up that was this turtle. Somebody found this turtle and pulled this plastic straw out of the turtle's nose so that it was a big deal. In reality, about 0.03% of the plastic in the oceans is from straws. So banning plastic straws is really not doing anything but making us feel better. I remember in California, yeah, that was a big thing. While I was there. A quarter of the plastic that is bound for the oceans, of all the world's plastic, a quarter of it comes from China. And like I said, China is not one to kowtow to environmentalist messages. And that's one of the things people don't realize. Is that China wants to get everybody else signed on. They're the biggest polluter. They want to get everybody else signed on to a bunch of environmental policies so they can advance at a higher rate and to the disadvantage of everybody else. And paper bags take more energy to produce than plastic. So it's a lot of these things that come up, you say, okay, well, we'll switch to paper bags because they're better than plastic. And then your carbon footprint goes way up because it takes more energy to produce the paper bags. That's why they switched to plastic in the first place. And so you're not doing a net benefit when it comes to the environment. So things are just not that simple. Next chapter, Sweatshop Save the Planet. What? That's provocative. A big question in this chapter is talking about energy density in our sources of energy. So coal is better than wood. Wood is a real problem. Even now, today, in underdeveloped nations, wood is a real problem. Natural gas is better than coal. Natural gas has a lower footprint. It burns better. It has a higher energy density. And so that's the question. What's the energy density? We've had a broad, huge decline in air pollution, especially shifting to natural gas. And more recently, because of the policies of the Trump administration, we had our first foray in energy independence because we had an increased natural gas extraction. But humans today actually use more wood than ever because of population growth and underdeveloped nations not having the same access to things like coal and natural gas, they have to use wood. And wood is really bad. It's really unhealthy, for one. It has the lowest energy density, and it creates more byproducts, negative byproducts for the atmosphere. So we have to get people off of wood. That should be the primary thing that we're trying to do. And if they don't have alternatives, then they're not going to have any options. But that's something that, again, Western countries are doing to them, is saying that, well, we're trying to prevent you from using things like natural gas and coal. We're saying these things are bad. So therefore you don't have but you can't just go and build a nuclear plant so you're just going to have to use have to use wood because we're imposing our ideological position on you and this is in places like Ethiopia that would benefit tremendously from being able to get off of wood but we've we've got this ideological sticking point next chapter greed saved the whales not greenpeace so one of the big deals when it comes to whales being fished all over the world is the development of vegetable oil. So vegetable oil, they used to use uh, whale blubber for cooking and oils that you get from the whales for cooking and all sorts of stuff. But vegetable oil was something that was developed. It was way cheaper, way easier, and worked way better. So it was something that made it unnecessary to go and fish these whales to the brink of extinction. So now whales no longer needed. It's not something that's necessary. Right now, there are no whales that are at risk of extinction. The market grew out of it. And then you have re regulations that will come on the back of that, and, and they're completely superfluous because the market already grew out of it and people have alternatives. But then you have some communist countries that because of central planning, they will stick to going after the whales, even though something like vegetable oil exists, because they have that central planning instead of relying on a market to try to determine what should be done. So this is another thing that you have to watch out for. 
Next chapter, I have your steak and eat it too. This is about meat. So apparently, if we all became vegan today and stuck with it, it would lead to a 2.6% reduction in emissions. 2.6, so that's if every single person became vegan, not just vegetarian. Apparently, 2-4% to of people out there are vegetarian or vegan, but meat production has roughly doubled since the early 1960s. There's always the question, of course, of free range. You know, that's the joke when you're at a restaurant. I remember there's something in, what was it, Portlandia? where they had to go actually meet the chickens and see how they were doing before they tried them. But pasture beef or free-range beef actually creates more carbon emissions because of the, the diet and the lifespan of that kind of beef. Not only that, but if it were if we converted to free range, then it would require much more land than is used in the factory system that we use today. It's much more efficient for the factory system to be used. Then there was a big fat surprise. So, of course, you heard when we were kids that high saturated fat was really bad for you. Saturated fat was the bad one, and you shouldn't have it and just load up on carbs. But more recent scholarship has suggested that high saturated fat has either no impact or it's beneficial. It's not dangerous. And a low-fat vegetarian diet is actually worse. And carbs themselves are not good at all. <laughs> at least high uh, amounts of carbs. And the author even talks about how he tried to go vegetarian. And I know Sam Harris, even though Sam Harris is a douchebag now, he went vegetarian too, but they experienced lightheadedness and they had trouble thinking and thinking clearly. And they were tired all day. Their energy levels were really bad when they went without meat, when they tried to go vegetarian. So they had to reincorporate meat. But there's a, a big link between vegetarianism in general and uh, your instinct to disgust, to feel disgust. So your sensitivity to that just emotion or that reaction, just disgust in general, will determine whether you're likely to be vegetarian or not. And he suggests that ethics of meat is not anything someone should be dogmatic about. Of course, there's the obvious point that out in the natural world, animals are being killed all over the place. And it's likely just a subjective response that doesn't have anything to do with whether you're trying to figure out the morality of killing animals. It's really just a subjective distaste for the thing that's happening. Like, oh no, it's cute, so I don't want you to do that. Rather than some kind of a, a real, objective, consistent look at what's going on and whether we should be doing it. So dogmatism in that area is likely emotionally driven and not something that should be occurring when it comes to the ethics of meat. 90% of climate scientists are vegetarian, so the question is, okay, is there a ton of bias? You know, it's just like when I was doing a lot of research when it came to the writing of the Bible and whether it's trustworthy, all that sort of thing, and how it came to be, and how much history is actually in it. The vast majority, you know, virtually everybody was a Bible-believing Christian who was doing the scholarship on, you know, biblical exegesis. So you have to wonder, okay, how much of the, how many of them are actually going to be objective on what's going on here? And the same thing when it comes to climate scientists and vegetarianism. There were these turkey farmers who don't even talk to environmentalists anymore because initially they thought it would just be, okay, we're trying to figure out the m most humane way to be able to do this sort of thing, but they don't even want to talk. They just want to shut all the turkey farmers down and they have no idea how the world actually works. <laughs> so it's just this weird dogmatic ideological thing for them. And meat itself requires less land than farming. In Argentina, they actually reduced land use for beef by 99.7% by shifting to the factory system of meat production. 99.7% less <laughs> land use that they can use for other things, you know, build parks or whatever, or develop because they shift to the factory system. So it's not so simple as to say that, oh, well, it just seems wrong, so let's go ahead and not do that. Uh, there's, there's a lot more going on here. 
Next chapter, Saving Nature is Bomb. This is about nuclear power. Uh, so there were all these things coming out about nuclear power. You know, a few decades ago, they'd said that there's a negative learning curve when it came to nuclear and that it was really dangerous. And you had things like Chernobyl and Fukushima. And those were used as examples to say that we should not be dealing with nuclear power. But the reality is that nuclear power actually has a very low mortality and a low radiation level. Fukushima killed nobody. Chernobyl, is my understanding, that killed a few. <laughs> but relative to others, like gas spills, gas spills actually kill way more than nuclear ever has over time. So the death toll is vanishingly small. In all the history of nuclear power, it's just over 100 people. And it's the highest energy density out of the things that we have readily available to us. It's also the safest way and most reliable way to make electricity. Now, we have a lot more nuclear power plants than I ever realized. For some reason, I was under the impression that they were, like, banned in the United States and we didn't have any. Maybe there was one in Texas or something. <laughs> but, uh, but we've actually got quite a few of them around the place. But there are still lots of places that just de facto say we're not going to have any nuclear power. But it's also the cleanest. If you want to get rid of carbon emissions, that's the way to avoid carbon emissions. And it has internalized waste. And this is something I didn't think about, is that when you use coal or something like that, then you have externalized waste. It's something that everybody else has to deal with that you can't contain. But nuclear power has internalized waste. They have these used fuel rods that they have to do something with. There's no good way to get rid of them. But it's, it's there. Uh, <laughs> you can geographically isolate it as a opposed to the waste that you create with something else. And there's this displaced fear, and this is something that I definitely, this is something that I thought, you know, growing up, and through my young adulthood, is just that there's this association of nuclear bombs with nuclear power plants. So uh, they could just blow up any time and kill everybody. And it's not the case. They're very different processes. They have nothing to do with each other. And it's something that we shouldn't have that kind of association with. But you had people like Jane Fonda and Hollywood in general. They went out and used a lot of deception and tried to frighten the public because they didn't know what they were talking about or because they were doing it deliberately and were against nuclear power next chapter destroying the environment to save it and transition is super expensive and not efficient at all so things like wind farms uh, they require 450 times more land than natural gas power plant and there are ancillary concerns like the wind is the greatest threat to bats so that damages the ecosystem significantly it's a threat to birds it's a threat to insects especially during migration if we switch all of our energy to be based on renewables in the united states then we'd have to use 25 to 50 percent of all the land in the united states for those sources of energy to be able to do the same power that we're doing now that's 25 to 50 percent of the land in the united states right now we're using 0.05 percent of the land for energy production so that's uh just i mean a mind-boggling difference that's insanity 0.05 versus 25 to 50 percent of the land Next one's all about the green. It's about money. Tom Steyer, he ran for president on a Democratic ticket. He's a billionaire. He's an environmentalist, I put in scare quotes, but he makes money investing in fossil fuels. So this is one of those big hypocritical things. And one thing that you see as the author goes through it, there are a whole bunch of organizations who take money from people like Tom Steyer and who take money from big oil and, and those kinds of companies who attack things like nuclear, but they take money from places that are like big oil, do natural 
natural gas or whatever. Because in reality, it's not about the ideology, it's about the money. And the climate activists themselves outspend climate skeptics dramatically. So you have to look at these sources. And one thing, oh my gosh, the Obama administration, it just keeps coming back to this. And you could see it a mile away, but nobody realized it, is that Obama had virtually no experience in government. He had, you know, two years down as a senator or whatever in Illinois. And then he gets kind of thrust into government at the highest position. And he's got all these people around him, like, you know, who are just the swampiest of swamp creatures. And he's got a mandate because uh, he's won by a lot and everybody's like, oh, hope and change. Oh, it's so great and all that stuff. But then you have things like the stimulus money that was poured out. A ton of it went to major financial contributors to Obama and the Democrats. A hugely disproportionate amount went to that. But so you have to look at where this stuff is going. You have to look at the sources of funding for these groups and you have to look at what they're actually saying and what they're actually attacking and whether that is likely to benefit some powerful interest in the background. The next chapter, denial of power. So one of the questions, leapfrogging by poor nations. The idea is that poor nations are supposed to be able to leapfrog what the Western nations did. They're supposed to be able to avoid all that industrial era where they created a whole bunch of pollution and be able to go straight into all the renewables and have great, wonderful economies and infrastructure. So you have Western nations cutting funding to nations that are using non-renewable resources. Even like hydroelectric would be a problem for some of these funding sources. And early on, it was uh, Malthus influenced Thomas Malthus who wrote about populations and how populations are going to outstrip resources, and that's a big deal. So early on, that was one of the rationales given, saying that we can't have these poor nations overpopulating and killing everybody. But what we have now is we give a bunch of money to charities. Uh, we don't give to infrastructure. So you might have a bunch of these handouts, but we're not building all the things necessary in all these places so that they can have robust economies and all that. And we read another book specifically about infrastructure. What book was that? It had a lot of good stuff in it that was talking about how the people in those local places just don't have the things, all the things set up so that they can do things like build businesses to be able to hire people and innovate and create products. They just don't have the infrastructure for that and that's where we need to be investing not in all these handouts like oh here's a you know here's a sandwich and an apple good luck so anyway there was all this stoking of fears of overpopulation initially and uh, then that switched from overpopulation fears to fears of the climate you know all the stuff that these developing nations are doing that are hurting the climate so we have to attack them for that so again, it's it's these Western nations that are already, already mature and developed that are preventing these other nations from going through the same process that we went through to be able to get to a more successful place than they are right now. Next chapter, False Gods for Lost Souls. And there was this polar bear video. I remember seeing this. It was heartbreaking seeing this thing. But it was supposed to be emblematic of, you know, polar bear suffering because of climate change. He looked all haggard and, and horrible and like he was just about to die. And he couldn't find food and he's been starving for, you know, weeks, all that kind of thing. But there was no evidence that it was because of climate change. It was a, a bit of misinformation that was thrown all out there and inflamed people. So like we said early on, the IPCC has specifically said that these are the issues with the climate, it's manageable, these are the things that we need to do, and then that gets switched to apocalypse. The journalists exaggerated, the activists exaggerated. The death toll from environmental problems is declining rapidly and has been. The wood fuel buildup actually matters more than anything related to general climate change. We have to get rid of wood fuel in a lot of these places. And it has become, this environmental activism has become this new religion. It meets the same needs as other religions. 
And then there's this sign-off about nukes being a memento mori. It's something that is just emblematic of death to us in general, and we have to get that association away from nuclear power because it has nothing to do with it. And then gorillas, I thought this was a good point, is that we don't need to save the gorillas because we're on the verge of an environmental apocalypse. We need to save the gorillas because they're cool and we like them. (laughs) So uh, I think that's simple enough. You like looking at parks, you like trees, you like biodiversity. It doesn't have to be the apocalypse to want to protect these things. And we can be more rational and objective about doing it if we stop talking in Jeremiah's and we're always on the verge of an apocalypse. Then there's an epilogue that specifically says, stand up for nuclear. Nuclear is a big deal. It's the most efficient way to power our needs without hurting the environment. Remember, this person is an environmental activist and has been for 30 years and is just trying to get rid of this alarmism. So nuclear is supposed to be the best alternative when it comes to trying to create power efficiently. And there's a difference. Uh, He wants to emphasize environmental humanism, which takes into account the effect that it has on people. So it's not just environmentalism at all costs, what it does to our economies and what it, what it does to people in general. But taking people into account, what can we do to have the best possible situation while still saving the environment to the extent that we possibly can? And this over-apocalyptic environmentalism, which is what's being spouted and being used and abused for political purposes and try to get money and all sorts of other things. So uh, that's the book. That's the book. <laughs> Moving into my analysis now, I definitely want to echo some of the people who had little blurbs about it that I read online. There were some um, reviewers in different publications who were talking about how it's one of the most important books that has come out in a long time and that everybody should be familiar with it and read it. And I will definitely agree with that. These are, and I'm seeing it so much more and more, you know, Tom Sowell was the big one. When I read his books and I see, oh my gosh, I've been lied to for so long. It's all the simplistic thinking has just been downloaded onto me because I just hear it over and over and over again. It's just repeated over and over again. And that was something with environmentalism that was the same thing. You know, I just towed the party line, the liberal party line for a couple of decades without even thinking about it until I really wondered whether the numbers about, you know, how many scientists thought the world was going to come to an end because of the environment. I wondered whether that 97 or 99% or 97% that statistic that you always see, whether that was actually saying what it was saying. And then when I looked into it, it wasn't anywhere near what anybody was saying. It was just saying that they thought that human beings affected the environment, uh, but it was being used to say that all these scientists think that we're on the verge of, you know, environmental collapse and we have to do something today to fix it. But then going all the way from that into this, now this really clarifies so much about the way all of this has worked, and especially reading what was supposed to be the most trenchant takedown of this book. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was amazing just how bad the counter-arguments were, and how little they actually tried to deal with the arguments themselves, and how much ad hominem attack there was. So, I really <laughs> I really appreciate having something like this that really puts together, okay, where it really is, without just sacrificing the activism or, you know, environmentalism in general. It didn't just say that we shouldn't do that at all. It said, okay, here's the best way to do that. And here's why all this alarmism is a real problem. So it seemed reliable to me. It was repeatedly concerned with tracing the sources of evidence. That was kind of the modus operandi throughout. So It would challenge statistics by going to the source of the statistic. And the guy's still an activist, like I said. It's just being a sensible activist instead of being an insane one who's just ideologically deranged. And so that was really encouraging. 
And like I said, the attack article was completely off the rails. It's hysterical. So it, it suggested even more that so much of this book is accurate. Now, obviously, there are a lot of claims in here that can be reviewed and you make sure that they're as accurate as possible and not being manipulated in some way. But to me, it seemed like it was concerned with accuracy and trying to be as objective as it could. Because it would have been really easy if, if all these things were totally wrong. It would have been really easy for this other reviewer who's a complete rabid activist to be able to take all the specifics down, but they didn't do that. So big ideas, you know, the, the treatment of developing countries, not allowing them to go through the transition to build the infrastructure that they need. Big idea, you know, important thing. And I don't know if Western countries are doing that deliberately to try to keep them down. But whatever the case, it's, it's a big idea that has to be addressed. The attack on nuclear, the fact that nuclear isn't what it's been sold as, you know, throughout in popular culture, that's a big idea that needs to be disseminated throughout. And the inefficiency of renewables, I already kind of knew about this, but the importance of land use considerations, that's not something that I really took into account, is that you really have to consider how land is being used and whether it's being used efficiently. And the fact that if you switch to all renewables, you'd have to use so much more of the land to be able to get that done because they're so inefficient. And it's hilarious to think because obviously one of the most recent things was that California had all these rolling blackouts and California was trying to get way ahead on the renewables train and they had all these rolling blackouts where they end up having to spend way more on power because they can't get it from their renewable sources. And they also have all these brush fires and there's like a fire just rolling across the 110. It was, it was insane. So they want to try to stand on their ideological derangement, but reality will hit you pretty hard, and I think that's a lot of the reason why so many people are leaving California. I really can't wait until that just turns into Thunderdome, uh, and everybody who's worth anything has already gotten out of it, and, you know, Hollywood, this is not the time for Hollywood to be taking such a dive, you know, <laughs> because they really need them. California, that is, needs them desperately, so I'm kind of inclined to just not support Hollywood at all, so I can see California just be done with, because that place is ridiculous. But anyway, so to get into some big picture stuff, we just had, I mean, John Kerry, I think he's, uh, John Kerry's the Biden administration environmental policy czar or something like that. But he said he had his learn to code moment when they were talking about the 11,000 jobs being lost by the Keystone XL pipeline being canceled. And he told, he said that they could go learn to build solar panels. I mean, it's not even just being out of touch. It's just being completely disinterested in actual results or reality or anything. Anything like that. I mean, and then Biden tried to, he killed thousands of other energy jobs by saying that he would admit no new contracts when it related to oil and natural gas. And I love this. There were these unions that were so surprised by the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline and loss of those jobs. And they're like, oh, wait, how dare he do that? He said what he was going to do. He said what he was going to do before the election. So you can't whine about it now. But it's really not about results. It's about consolidating power and just look at everything that the Biden administration is doing and just think, okay, does it really actually help any American? <laughs> is it really doing anything for American people? Because it's not about results. One thing that I heard somebody say recently is that Democrats don't like to govern. They don't want to govern. That's not what they're trying to do. They just get in there to try to consolidate their own power. Under the Trump administration, we had energy independence. We had lower carbon emissions despite cutbacks on regulations and leaving the Paris Climate Accords. Now we are here. Now we're here. 
So I think from here, though, we need to really demand environmental humanism, that you balance those things and reject the catastrophizing that goes on. It's always this emotional appeal that it's almost the end of the world and how dare you and all that nonsense. And we need to reject that line, period. Anyway, so <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Coffee House. And that was Apocalypse Never, Michael Schellenberger, I think his name was. And so that was uh, one of the big ones for sure coming out of 2021 that we're reading in 2021 so far. And it's something we're going to have to return to. I'm going to have to do a recap of the important books. And I should do that for 2020 just so we can go back over a lot of the ideas. Because we are taking in so much information at this point. It's ridiculous. For any one of these books, we could do a whole year just <laughs> talking about different points throughout the book and discussing each one of those ideas, but we're just doing, you know, a book and episode and discussion. So thank you so much for sitting with me and uh, going through that whole thing, and thank you for anybody who's been listening, and I will see you on the discussion. Hope all is well. Bye. 